The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak new languages, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God. But they went forth and preached everywhere, and while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through accompanying signs. The Gospel of the Lord. The Ascension. Well, we all know what the ascension is. Jesus ascends up into the clouds. He gets to the moon, takes a right turn, stops for a drink of water at Mars, because apparently there is water there, and then keeps on going until he gets to heaven. If you read the scriptures like that, you miss the whole language of the scriptures. We think in images. I mean, there are people who are really very good and we're all taught to think in terms of data. Two plus two equals four, algorithms and things like that. But nobody lives their life like that. We know that chemical reactions, that there's biology, chemistry in our body and there's all these complicated interactions. If you've ever gotten sick, you've learned a lot about one part of your body and how, say, a coronavirus can affect it. But that doesn't explain who we are. Each of us, because we're human beings, strive for a holistic view of life. We're always looking for meaning and purpose, at least once we get to be older than 16 years old, because we recognize that there's consequences to things. That's part of it. But also, there's this deep spiritual sense in life. It's something more than just this. And so faith is a rational understanding, but faith always has an emotional component to it because that's what a whole human response looks like. People who prize solely the rational, like Dr. Spock in the old uh, Star Trek series, people who are completely rational, rarely are successful in any relationship. Because relationships are about where the other person is at. It's feeling someone out. It's having some emotional intelligence. It's what being a whole person looks like. Emotion on its own, well, you're just driven by your passions. Reason on your own, you never get anybody around you. How we feel, how we think are the components of what it means to be an entire human being. And so we think in images. And so to understand the story of Christ's life, you have to think in images. If God's going to reveal himself to you, wouldn't it be the easiest thing if Jesus just wrote down the following 10, no 11 commandments, the last one having 26 subparts, is what I want you to do. Why didn't Jesus ever write anything? 
He was obviously literate. He could read. Because writing is what divides Christianity in some sense, isn't it? Everybody's a lawyer. Everybody's a Pharisee. Everybody imposes their reading on a text. But images, images feed us. How you think of Jesus, whether it's you have a holistic view of him or you cut him up into little discrete parts where he could be like just a guy you meet on the street in Tucson. Jesus spoke Aramaic. If you met him, you wouldn't understand a word he said. His world would be so different from ours. They think differently. And so here's something. Did you pay attention to the gospel of Mark? These are the signs. You'll cast out demons. You'll drink poisonous things. You'll pick up serpents. You'll heal. These will be the signs. Well, the church has always had an exorcism practice. Still does. The church has always been involved in healing. We created the first hospitals. They're really a Christian invention. But Drinking poison, kissing serpents, where does this come from? As you know, there are some snake handlers, right? You've heard these got people, these Christians, they handle snakes, and this is a sign that they're preaching the truth. You know, you'd hope that there would be something more for their credibility than they got along with snakes. But have you ever heard the phrase, you'll whip your weight in wildcats? You can deal with toxicity. You can deal with the poisonous. Because when Jesus sends his apostles out, it's into a pretty toxic world. How do you deal with the toxics that don't just take your life, but corrupt your soul? It discourages you. And that's how evil works in our life. It diverts us to trivia. It deceives us. Why there are so many disagreements about Basic kinds of things, scientific understandings. You thought science is science, apparently not. Evil discourages us. Evil divides us. You want to know what Satan looks like? Deception, diversion, discouragement, division. So how does the church learn to get by that? Because it can drink poison and the bite of the serpent doesn't overcome it. And so the ascension. Did you get the part in Acts of the Apostles, which was the first reading? It's the part when it said Jesus was taken up into the clouds. And to think of the ascension, and remember, I say Jesus speaks in images, that he actually levitated this is completely believable. I went to, I was taught by Father Jerry, can't remember his last name, he was a Capuchin, but he had been in the same convent with Blessed Solanus Casey. Have you ever heard of Blessed Solanus Casey? He said there were men that he lived with who saw him levitate. Now that's a weird one, isn't it? What would that possibly mean? Was that consistent with Catholic belief? Well, Jesus levitated. What do you do with that? Well, I know what the apostles did with it. They said he went into the clouds. Because if you go to the Old Testament, Psalm 104, Isaiah 32, I think it is, 
The Lord rides on the clouds. When he comes, he comes in glory on clouds. So for Jesus to be taken up into the clouds is an image of who God is. Did you know Mark did not say anything about clouds because they don't all say it the same way. Between Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're getting four or five witnesses from different angles about what they saw and what happened. So in Mark's gospel, it said he was taken up into heaven. When we think of heaven, we think of heaven as this place where we're with God. But we're told, right, that we're going to participate in the resurrection at the end of time. When a new heaven and a new earth descends and a new city, Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven. Do you remember this? Book of Revelation. See, we have these different stories, these different images about something that you can't reduce to mathematics, chemistry, or biology. But in the Jewish world of the first century, they had three heavens. Do you remember St. Paul famously talks about being snatched up into the third heaven? Does that phrase ring a bell with you? Well, there it is in the Bible. First heaven, you step outside, you see the blue sky. That was the first heaven. And so where rain came from, windows would open and water would come out because the world's surrounded by water. Ancient Hebrew cosmology doesn't really survive rover or any of the rockets that are going up with increasing regularity, right? Second heaven, sun goes down, and come the stars. It's a different heaven. Third heaven is whatever's behind the stars. It's sphere upon sphere, blue and black, and then whatever shines through, which the Greeks called the imperium. It was the basis for astrology. The idea is the stars moved around and the traveling stars, we call them the planets, moved around. That this was God's world communicating with us through these celestial lights. It's not a modern view of the world. But when St. Paul says, or Mark says, he was taken up into heaven, what they mean is the place where God dwells. And so, that is the imagery of the ascension. But beneath it is a more important imagery and what's being communicated. Do you remember the story in the book of Genesis of Cain and Abel, one of the most famous stories? And so I keep saying, in the Gospels, all roads lead to Genesis. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, there is two sacrifices made. It's the first sacrifices made in Scripture. One's acceptable, one's not acceptable. And mostly when you see pictures in children's Bible, it's Cain's smoke creeps along the ground because God doesn't accept it. Abel's smoke goes right up to heaven because God does accept it. The Bible doesn't say that. But we think in images. Do we know God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice? God didn't say. And so, make your own guess. But it's the idea of how do you know that your repentance has been accepted? How do you know that your prayer has been heard? How do you know that your sacrifice is acceptable to the Lord? Well, don't you want a sign? 
Wouldn't it be nice if you made it so clear you didn't misunderstand it? That in an only spiritual sense, God hit you with a two by four between the eyes and said, this is it. Okay. Here's what sacrifice looks like because of Cain and Abel. In the old world, they would build an altar made out of unhewn stones. That means stones in a natural sense. They put a big grate on it. They build a big fire. Then they throw a lamb, a bullock, whatever the sacrifice was. And the way that it worked was at least one kind of sacrifice, what's called an oblation, and I've explained it before. God takes part of the sacrifice because it goes up like incense before him. That's why we still offer incense. Because it goes up to heaven, right? The air conditioning system doesn't screw it up too badly. Then, there's a part for the priests. And there's a part that's consumed. So, sacrifice. How do you participate in the sacrifice of the cross? The cross, Jesus is the priest because he offers himself. The cross is the altar, the place where the sacrifice is made. Jesus is the lamb, that is the sacrificial offering. Priest, altar, sacrifice. That's how the early church understood it. And so what makes that understanding? is because the night before he died, he took bread in his venerable hands, which we do every day here. And he offered it and said, this is take and eat, this is my body. And then he offered a chalice, a cup filled with wine. Take and drink. For this is the cup of the new covenant, which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. It's sacrificial language. He's telegraphing what he's doing. And so the the next day when he doesn't defend himself, he doesn't say anything. He even admits publicly to being the Messiah, which is a death wish. Then he's killed. What makes the cross a sacrifice? What we do here today. What kind of sacrifice? It's an oblation. What's an oblation? Part of the sacrifice is destroyed. Part the priests eat. And when you come to communion, you're exercising your priesthood. You're taking the priest's part of the sacrament, of the sacrifice. And then the sacrifice is accepted by God, taken to heaven, right? And so he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven like smoke from a burning altar. Now, how would he explain that to you? Because what he does is he acts it out for us. The ascension is part of the paschal mystery because it completes the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If Jesus was died, thrown in a hole in the ground, what, how would you know his sacrifice was accepted? Last supper, death on the cross, body in the hole. And so, for the church, the symbol that the sacrifice was accepted was the empty tomb. All taken up to heaven. And so what do you do with this? 
Because Jesus says in the gospel today, you're supposed to go out into the world and you're supposed to proclaim him. Matthew says, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church is a mission, not a fort. And so, I think there's two options that Catholics look at. It's two things you ought to think about when you're thinking about your own spiritual life. Because this has been part of Catholicism pretty much since the beginning. The first, Pope Benedict called the Benedict option. Not after himself, but after Saint Benedict. Because the early church, the first thing they did, they went into the upper room and locked the door for fear of the Jews. And they lived their life there until they were sent out on mission. St. Benedict founded monasteries. That's how the ancient writings of many Greeks and Latins reach us. It's where the liturgy of the hours was developed. They still were part of the liturgical reform following the Second Vatican Council. The Benedictines have played a very important role in the culture of Catholicism. So in your homes, how do you exercise the Benedict option? Well, first of all, you protect yourself and young people from poisons and serpents. What do you let in your home? What do you let in your own eyes? What do you allow in your ears? Is the culture stealing your mind and the mind of young people away? Because our homes are not sufficiently safe. Now, if you just shut young people off from the world outside of yourselves, right? You're going to end up being a freak. So the question about what you let in is how you let it in. And you do not let it in uncritically. You talk about things with young people. You give them the tools to understand. You try to understand, try to see Christ in what's happening in movies and books and the other things that are coming in music. Foster those things which give a sense of wholeness of purpose, bring peace into your home, look for truth, scientific, literary, philosophical, and don't be deceived. The Benedict Option. Deal with the world filtered through a Christian lens, especially the world that you allow to exist in your house. The second option, the missionary option of the church. And it's really not an either or. When Jesus talks to his disciples, it's about how do we take the gospel out. If we do not confront the culture, if we don't talk about human rights, if we don't defend those populations that are most threatened, if we don't live and preach the gospel, darkness will take us over. The knock on the church during the Second World War, if you don't remember, is Pius XII did not do enough to decry the abuse of the Jews, the Holocaust. Now everybody wants the church to go back in hiding and say nothing. But why didn't you say something when the Jews were being persecuted? You can't turn that switch on and off. And so, 
rationally, respectfully, to proclaim the truth? Mission of the church. Evangelization is about creating images in people's lives, helping them to understand their own lives. Because darkness descends, darkness corrupts, darkness divides, darkness deceives, darkness discourages. That's why it's good hope, good news. It's hope. So as we think of the ascension, understanding what God did for us in the story of Jesus Christ is where our hope comes from. It's rational because we have this from the eyewitnesses. But it also makes sense that the lives that we value so much, the young people we love, nothing about love ends. Because those who abide in love, according to John, who we let listen to last week, those who abide in love abide in God. And so let us rise.